Hello everyone and welcome back to Inspire Beyond Borders. This is our final episode exploring Kenya with Roger. This week we go on a three-day safari looking for Africa's Big Five. Start planning today and take that trip you've always wanted to. Every adventure gives you the opportunity to experience something new. Traveling will pay tenfold what you pay to actually do it. This is Inspire Beyond Borders, and we're here to help you see the world. Day six begins. You take a trip to some African villages. Can you tell us about these villages? It was kind of a, um, reminds me of like an old Sturbridge village thing for us uh, Massachusetts folks, right? Where it's kind of just this representation of what some of their villages might look like. And um, in a lot of cases, they seem to be kind of mostly what you would think of kind of like indigenous cultures from like a South America kind of thing, right? Where it's, you know, kind of some muds and some timber and stuff like that to kind of form the frames and then, you know, mud and uh, straw for the, the roofs and things. And in some cases, I guess they even mixed manure into the, kind of some of the walls. And I think just mostly because it's available, you know, nothing really smelled too poorly. So that was great. But uh, it was mostly just kind of like a, a tourist exhibit, so it wasn't like an active village or anything like that, but it was just kind of like this, uh, you know, I guess, cultural representation of kind of the area and talking about some of the different tribes and things. If they gave you the opportunity, would you be able to stay there for a week? I don't think you could do it in terms of what was available at the site. Could I live in one of those things for a week? Uh, might be able to pull it off, but you, you'd probably be a little... Uh, little ripe by the end and need a, a nice hot shower. But um, for the most part, it looked like it would be a, a manageable for a couple of nights or something. It might be a, an interesting weekend, but I don't know if it would be a week. <laughs> Aside from what the houses were made of, was there anything else that stood out? I guess what was kind of neat, too, was kind of seeing some of the different cultural aspects. So they talked about there was, it wasn't like a, a tour guided thing. It was kind of self-guided and there'd be some signs around or whatever. Um, but it was uh, a lot of the different cultures had multiple live kind of situations. And it was interesting to see kind of how they were laid out where some would have, you know, separate houses for each wife and some would have, you know, the whole family kind of within a single house kind of thing. So the, the size of these things kind of changed drastically. But I think that was kind of more or less what was kind of the standouts. How close were these village showcases to where you were staying? Yeah, so we went to a uh, a mall just to kind of pick up some snacks and stuff beforehand, and that was kind of right, uh, I guess, at the, the limits of Karen. So it was probably, it was like a 10-minute, 15-minute car ride from where we were staying at the treehouse. And then um, I want to say it was only a handful of miles, maybe two, three miles, something like that, away from the mall where this place was. So kind of within uh, a reasonable driving distance, but not... Not anything that was walkable for kind of our standards. There were some pretty busy hi uh, highways in between there, so uh, definitely a, an Uber trip. Was there any significant difference between the tribes? Nothing that really stood out in terms of you know differences between houses. It was most, mostly kind of those uh, those cultural aspects, whether or not you know the, the families all stayed in one house, or if there was you know some, several outbuildings within you know a tribe's you know family unit, whether or not there would be all the wives in one spot or kind of a, a separate housing unit for, for each you know, subfamily, I guess, if you want to break it up that way. You have something on your itinerary that I'm really excited to ask about. There were different dances for the different tribes. Did you have a favorite dance? It would really be kind of hard to identify a favorite one, I suppose. It was all pretty neat. So um, they have this basically 
kind of an indoor auditorium thing where it was kind of like a, I kind of picture it like a, a gym now, right? Where there's kind of some stands all around and kind of almost like a little concert venue and it was all like wood floor or whatever. And there was like a band set up. So there was, you know, people playing all kinds of drums and uh, kind of native instruments and things. And then like a whole group of people would come out and, you know, the different cultural costumes from like different tribes and things and just kind of a whole variety of things. And there was even like, like a group that was doing some more like, acrobatic kind of stuff where you know you kind of the, the expected backhand sprints and flips and you know, hold, you know holding people up and spitting fire and stuff so i mean that was pretty neat but i think just in general just taking in kind of the whole thing was pretty you know neat to see kind of the, the different colorful outfits that they would have or just hear kind of the different uh, musical i guess flavors that they would uh, kind of boast for each different group so it was just kind of an enriching experience just to kind of you know be there and be kind of part of something that's u- unique to that culture right so that was pretty pretty cool were you asked to dance at all? Yeah, so <laughs> being pretty obviously not from the area, uh, usually you know you, you worry about being picked out and obviously found, but uh, they generally weren't really asking a lot of people to, to go up there. Um, there were some school trips going on and stuff, so like a lot of the kids would kind of be dancing around the sides and you know they'd come and grab a couple of kids or whatever and bring them out there and kind of do their thing. So no, we did not dance. We didn't really give it a, a shot either, but um, there were some kids and stuff that did do some dancing. That's great. And for day six, it says here that you stopped to eat at Pizza Hut. How was that? Yeah, it's pretty funny. So I'm, I guess, by nature at this point, just kind of an addict. So I kind of try pizza wherever I go. There's usually at least one stop. And Pizza Hut was like the first one that I'd I'd seen that was kind of, you know, kind of what we'd expect in the U.S. So we gave it a shot. Mostly the same kind of general flavor right so the sauce and bread is probably all kind of the same general thing but then you know they'd have some different combinations and things with you know different flavorings on meats and uh, some different local veggies and stuff that were available i forget which one we actually went with but it wasn't bad it ended up not agreeing with me later that night but that's fine but uh in general it all kind of tasted uh, about what i would expect but something clearly wasn't agreeing how do you rate kenya pizza compared to new york or boston pizza Compared to New York pizza, it's absolute trash, right? But I mean, for a, a pizza hut in, a, in an African country when you're kind of really setting a pretty low bar, I mean, it was it was fine, you know, four or five out of 10 kind of thing, something like that. You can't really go wrong with pizza. That's the beauty of it. And just like you, I also have to try it everywhere I go just to see the minor differences between every country. Yeah, it's it's the perfect vehicle for anything that's around, right? You know, if they've got some unique meat, they can throw right on there, and it's something that you're kind of familiar with, so you have a baseline to compare it and see if it's different, right? But um, yeah, I I just can't help it. I did the same thing when I was in China too, and everybody laughs at me. I'm like, I, I had to. <laughs> Not to get too off topic here, but would you say Kenya pizza or China pizza? China stands out a little bit more to me because I went a couple different times and we've tried two different ones i tried one in beijing and shanghai the one in shanghai had corn and all kinds of random veggies on it so that was interesting the one in beijing was a little bit seemed almost more like an upscale-ish restaurant for what they kind of had available that we saw and then in kenya um it was kind of a kind of reminded me like a mccafe setup where it was kind of you know the expected pizza hut uh ambiance but then kind of had a little bit more of a uh a crafty culture to it right so it kind of had kind of you know nicer tables and those kinds of things but um if i had to pick one i guess china just because it stands out a little differently of being different okay so it looks like the big meat and potatoes portion of the trip is here where you take a three-day safari you leave the treehouse 
and you start heading to your safari, why don't you tell us a little bit about the safari and what you experienced and how the drive was going to the area that you'd be staying in this safari? Yeah, so kind of uh, a nod to the previous episode, right? We talked about um, originally we planned on this being a bit of a volunteer trip. And through the volunteer group, there was um, some suggested safaris and companies that they have typically worked with. Um, so we had originally selected one from there. And then when we kind of changed our minds on um, being more of a vacation because of the family planning, uh, we just kept the same safari uh, schedule. So the trip out there was interesting. We actually ended up covering a lot of the same ground as we did on the way to uh, Lake Nukuru and stuff. So went through that great rift valley and kind of stopped at the same tourist trap souvenir spot. So that was interesting. And then obviously went a little bit further because it was another couple hours from kind of the lake area out to uh, the Masai Mara uh, National Park, uh, which was kind of interesting because it was kind of, uh, as we'll kind of talk about in the covering the safari, it is adjacent to the Serengeti National Park. It's just because of the different countries and locations there is it's kind of the differentiator. Um, so we kind of overlooked Serengeti, but we never really technically got in there because we were staying uh, in Kenya. Do you remember how much the safari was? Yeah, I think uh, from what we had talked about and what I seem to remember, it looked like it was about 400 bucks each. So it really wasn't uh, anything too crazy, but certainly uh, uh, not, a, not a cheap trip either. So when it comes to visiting Kenya, really, it is a wallet-friendly trip. You're going to end up spending most of your money on these safaris. Yeah, and from what we saw and from people we've talked to, I know one of uh, my wife's uh, family members went there on kind of a honeymoon, right? But they kind of went to, you know, the the upper echelon of hotels and, you know, kind of money is no object kind of thing versus in our situation, we were trying to do it, you know, kind of cheaply and doing it affordably. And so there's really quite the range and uh, the accommodations are, are pretty obviously different too, right? So it's being that this was for uh, kind of a volunteer set of groups, uh, the, the standards could be kind of lowered a little bit, right? So they weren't really providing, you know, four and five star meals or anything like that. It was kind of serve yourself kind of family style feeding, which was great. Everything was fine, but it's just, you know, manage your expectations for, for what you're paying for and you'll be fine. So were there a lot of people on this trip? Yeah. So in our group, we all met up back at that same mall with the pizza hut. There was a group of, I think about 15 of us. So we ended up having to take three different vans, which are very similar to the one when we did to the lake as well. It's kind of that Zuzu bubble looking van that has like a chop top that just lifts straight up so that you can stand out the um, the center of it while you're kind of driving around in the uh, the national park to get better views. Were you comfortable in these vans? Because you mentioned there were three vans, but you have to fit all these people. And I imagine there is some stuff that they need to bring to help set up camp and for the people who are attending the safari. There were some supplies, but I think they were pretty good about how they packed them because we never really even saw them. So it was mostly just around kind of our luggage and people. There was three different rows of seats plus the front seat right there, the passenger. Uh, there was kind of two seats, two seats and a three on the bench in the back. Uh, we scored kind of the, the two seats close to the big sliding door so that we had a little bit more leg room and could kind of throw our luggage at our feet or you know kind of have a little bit of room to, to wiggle around so that we didn't get too claustrophobic it was definitely a good move but that was not a uh, not an uncoveted seat everybody was kind of looking for it but we had ended up sneaking it in that's a bet move right there you're just sitting outside oh yeah everybody just pile in this will be great Nah, you guys first that's awesome we'll just figure it out it's fine <laughs> okay so while you're on this trip you're camping 
you mentioned that you camp just outside the park. Was all the camping equipment provided for you by the safari company, or did you have to bring some with you? No, everything is provided by them. Um, most of the stuff was already kind of at the spot that we were going to. It's a pretty regularly uh, visited thing. I think that's kind of a, I guess, a, a semi-permanent uh, type campsite. The uh, the tents themselves are kind of like those big canvas army kind of style tents, and they actually connect to like a concrete slabbed walled-in bathroom. So that was kind of neat. So everything was kind of there and ready for you. And uh, same with, like I said, the food is already there, uh, with the exception, I think, of some of like, the lunch foods that they pack out and bring with us, which was just kind of like a box lunch. Looking back, is there anything you can recommend that people could bring to make the experience a little bit better for themselves? So we're usually really good about reading reviews and kind of planning ahead for some of that kind of stuff, right? So, I mean, the, the number one thing, especially for Africa with all the kind of the diseases and stuff that you have to worry about is just bug spray and DEET, right? So you have to have as much DEET as possible. They recommend basically 100%. But uh, yeah, just for camping and something like this, just, just bug, bug spray. <laughs> How did you go about charging your phone or any other electronics you might have had with you? Yeah, so at the... um. The National Park facility that we stayed at, and I, I don't remember the name of it or anything like that, but I know it's within Masamar. They ended up running a generator for a number of hours a day, so that was pretty sweet. So at the end of the night, I think it was from like 5 to 10 or something like that, they ran a generator, and there was a, a handful of plugs or whatever in the uh, each of the campsite tents. So there was an opportunity to charge up. But again, like I mentioned, your uh, converter plugs with you, uh, that's always a big thing, and you, know, you can buy that usually from like Amazon or even like a, a Brookstone for like 20 bucks or something like that. So it's really not a huge item, but if you don't have it, you're kind of hosed and then you're buying something at the airport or something and you're going to spend a ton of money. So what was it like camping out in the wild in Africa? Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where you kind of pinch yourself, right? And have to think about it for a minute. You know, like, wait a minute. I'm in Africa doing this thing, you know, probably within miles, there's a lion eating something or potentially stalking something, right? So there's all these things in the back of your head, like what's going on here? And then, you know, just... Taking it all in, you know, you have some really cool nights and being kind of the nerd that I am, I love looking at stars and kind of, and just, you know, not necessarily looking for constellations in particular, but just kind of, you know, taking it in. And this was probably top two uh, moments of my life in terms of stargazing, right? So it's this one. And then when we were up in uh, Gimmelwald, which was in Switzerland. So just, you know, between the Alps, unbelievable. You know, there's no light pollution around you from a big city. You're just, you're just there. And it's just unbelievable. Was it cold? Like, how cold would it get at night? In the time we were going, again, it was like July, so it's their uh, winter being on the other side of the equator. But, you know, for them, cool really isn't, you know, our version of cold when you talk about New England. But, you know, it was like upper 30s, lower mid 40s kind of thing at night. So um, in our case, we were pretty comfortable with just kind of like a hoodie and some jeans or something like that, right? So uh, we both packed uh, a pair or two of jeans and then, and uh, just kind of a hoodie to be able to compensate for some of that, some of that. But then I did have like a fire going at night, so you could cozy up to the fire and hang out and just listen to stories or whatever if you wanted to. But in general, we just usually were pretty wiped from the day, so uh, just headed back to the campsite or our tent, I guess, and then uh, just snuggled up, use that body heat. <laughs> now here's something interesting: your guide actually had to haggle to get into the park. Yeah, that was kind of a, a an uncertain moment, right? So you're, you've been driving all day, you're doing this thing, and you're going off these bumpy roads, and all of a sudden you get to this gate where there's you know some local, kind of looks like he might be indigenous tribey kind of style dude. So you're not sure if he's connected in with the, the local tribe or if he's kind of just you know a local to the area that's you know a little bit more of a, a regular village or whatever. But um, 
yeah, the driver stop and they speak to him for a few minutes and you kind of hear him going back and forth. And all of a sudden, you know, the driver pulls out a lot of cash and just starts flipping them a couple of bills and off we go. Right. And it's for the entire group. So it's like, is that their money? Like, I, I don't really understand where that came from, but I assume it's kind of included in the price, but it's just kind of a, a necessary evil for the business, I guess. Right. To be able to get in and have access to that. It's something that I definitely did not expect, but it was a uh, pretty seamless once it kind of all transacted, but we we're just like, what just happened? <laughs> Was that something that was included in the price or did you have to pay extra for it? Yeah, it must have been or just kind of something that they expect that they have to pay. So they just kind of have a, you know, a, a flex fee or a flex fund or whatever, like in their glove box or something and just flipping some bills. I hope you were taking notes from your earlier dance classes because it looks like you have written here that there is a welcome dance for the tribe that you were visiting at the safari. Yeah, this was pretty neat. We, um, there was a, uh, one of the tribes, uh, people came down and picked us all up and walked us up to kind of the area or whatever. And then said, Oh, we're going to do, you know, our welcome dance and, you know, a fleet of guys come walking up and there was probably 10 of them, 15 of them, something in that order. And, you know, just kind of some chanting and some like singing. And like one dude had this like absolutely notable, like raspy deep voice and you could just kind of hear him making all these like really deep noises kind of in the background. So that was kind of fun. And it's just kind of like, you know, they stomp around in circles and kind of walk around the group or whatever. And then kind of like really the big finale that they brought people in for was kind of this jumping situation where they told us afterwards kind of what was happening. But they basically give you one of their their cloaks to sit in, you know, one of their like walking sticks. And you're, you know, you're supposed to like jump up and just kind of like bang the thing on the ground when you get down. So that was kind of fun. Uh, we come to find out that that's actually part of, uh, I guess, uh, some of their wedding rituals where the highest jumper or some of their courtship rituals, something, I forget exactly the details, but um, the highest jumper wouldn't have to pay basically a, a dowry to the family for their wife, right? So if they can jump the highest, you're just kind of like in, like, here's my daughter. And like for the other guys, it's like, sorry, you have to give us some some goats or something, whatever whatever the uh, the fee was, if you will. But yeah, it was, it was just interesting. That's actually really cool because it's nice to get involved that deeply into a culture while you're visiting a country. Yeah. It can be daunting or, or a lot of pressure to sort of take in a culture and attempt to do what they're doing. So how did you feel doing the welcome dance? Could you do it right now if we asked you to? I'd probably have to go back to some of the uh, the videos we took to see if I could recall some of the other moves. But, you know, our, our uh, involvement was basically just the jumping. But, yeah, it was really kind of neat to, you know, be welcomed to a point where, you know, they show you this kind of stuff and just the opportunity to, to partake. You know, you get a, have to get over the uh, the social norms a little bit and just kind of let it go and just, you know, enjoy the, the enjoy the culture for what you're getting and just, you know, let go to the experience. And, you know, don't worry about looking silly because you kind of feel silly just jumping around in the air or whatever. But it's. You know, it's just something to really embrace, you know, what you're doing and, and the involvement that you have while you're there. Did the tribe seem welcoming or were they happy to see tourists or was it sort of a burden for them? Oh, yeah. So it seems like they do uh, quite a bit with bringing different groups into their village. Basically, I think most of the groups that visit this camping area are offered that opportunity. It was uh, an option for us, but we kind of figured, you know, while we're there, you know, why sit in the tent? What else are we going to do? But they bring you up to their village and kind of show you around. And then <laughs> kind of as everything we seem to find with Africa, there's uh, always a, a catch at the end where there's a, a little craft table circle and they, you know, they're trying to sell you all kinds of stuff. And a lot of it's gorgeous. And, you know, you, you feel some pressure to, to buy some things. You, you're usually able to get kind of away if you really wanted to. But um, 
you know, you kind of feel like you're doing some good to help out a, a tribe that's really surviving really next to nothing. Um, they live basically as uh, indigenous or try to as much as they can based on kind of what their heritage was. So that was kind of neat to see. Um, so they don't necessarily have technology or anything like that, but obviously they interact with, you know, tourists quite often. So they're aware of things, but they certainly just kind of live kind of their uh, indigenous lifestyle. It's nice to finally be immersing yourself in the culture, but there's always some things that stand out specific to each culture. Did you happen to find anything specifically that related to these Kenyan tribes? The one major one that stands out to me is they told us this story that when a young boy becomes a man, part of that trip is they send them out in the woods. And from what we understand, and maybe there were some language barriers there, but what they told us is that they're not allowed to come back until they have a, a, a dead lion on their person, right? So they have to bring back some a lion carcass and kind of show evidence that, you know, look, we can handle ourselves. We've just struck down this lion and they've, they made it pretty apparent that they don't get all of their boys back all the time. So that's kind of a, a pretty intense situation, but uh, it was kind of a, a neat little look into their culture too. That's really interesting because most of us at the age of 15 or 16 don't even know what we're going to be having for lunch that day. And generally our parents are still taking care of us. Yeah, we think it's pretty wild that we get a, a driver's license, right? And we're sent out into the world with, hey, here's a car, you know, don't kill anybody. And they're sending these kids out into the wilderness with absolutely nothing on them and just say, go kill a lion. It's like, oh my God, it's just, you know, really makes you appreciate, you know, what we are afforded as, you know, Americans and kind of what, be grateful for what you have and, you know, just appreciate the fact that everybody's, everybody's different, but going through the same journey, just in very different ways. Another part of their culture is tattoos or what they do is stick burnings. So how does that work? Yeah. So if you've ever seen, um, basically think of the Boy Scouts, right? When they go to start a fire, they use like a stick and rub them together and get, you know, that friction heat. Um, basically that's what it is, is they were showing us how they start a fire and then they were saying, oh, do you guys want tattoos? And we're like, absolutely. And they pointed to them on their arms and they're basically just these like carterized, like, big burns on their arms we're like yeah we gotta do that you know this when, are we, when else are we gonna do that so a number of the uh, the volunteers or whatever that we were with ended up getting some i got one and my wife was a, a tough guy and decided to get three but um she she still kind of regrets that a little bit that was pretty cool you know and the, you know, this guy's just like huddled over you know rubbing the sticks together and just jabs you for a few seconds and then takes it off and says, oh well that was intense <laughs> <laughs> um you still have it today i'm assuming it's faded quite a bit, but uh, hers are still a little interesting. I guess you'll have to uh, re-up on your ticket to Kenya and grab another stick tattoo. Yeah, sign me up. Let's do it. So you run into the problem of getting pressured into buying little crafts or trinkets again. How does it differ from other countries or major cities you've been to compared to what they're doing in Kenya? Yeah, I, th I think what's different in this case to me was just the fact that, you know, they're doing all this stuff to be hospitable and kind of show you and really get you engaged with their culture specifically versus, you know, you're a tourist in an area that's always going to need trinkets and things, right? So it's a little bit different where you almost feel a little bit more pressure from a moral standpoint that, you know, they offered me this friendship or friendliness or friendly act, I guess is a better way to say it. So it's like, I want to offer something back. So there's kind of that. So after they give you like a little tour of their house, they really just kind of, you know, pressure you with stuff that they specifically made. 
But then even after that, you're locked out to kind of like basically what I would call like a flea market, right? Where there's all these tables set up and basically all the families are trying to get you on the last little ditch effort to on the way out buy something. Um, so we ended up actually buying what they told us were uh, lion teeth. So we bought like necklaces that had like a lion tooth on them or whatever. And it, you know, it was 20 bucks for the two of them or maybe it was 20 each. I forget. But um, it felt, you know, good to give kind of them something back. And uh, from what we understand, our, our tour guide can tell apparently by the weight of the tooth, whether or not it's real or fake. And apparently ours are real, but you know, whatever. It's still a memento from the country and we gave to a, a family that likely needed it. So it's fine with us. In this portion of the podcast, we talk about the great wildebeest migration, the numerous amount of animals you can see on the safari, and the border of Tanzania. Day 8 begins, and you're on the safari, you have a wildebeest movement going on, the migration. What was that like? It was pretty wild. You know, not having seen many wildebeests with the exception of, you know, the Lion King or whatever, right? You see the, the stampede scene and, you know, hopefully everybody's not jerking away any tears here. But um, you're just driving through it and it's just everywhere you look is just these flocks or herds, I guess is the, the appropriate term. I don't know if it's a murder of uh, wildebeests or whatever, but uh, <laughs> all of these wildebeests are just running around and just kind of grazing and they're just everywhere. It's just a sea of wildebeest. It's absolutely crazy and was an amazing thing to see. For those people out there that aren't impressed with wildebeest when compared to seeing, say, a giraffe or elephant or maybe a lion, how impressed were you seeing these animals and what is one of the largest mammal migrations in the world? Yeah, I think I would probably rate it pretty darn close. I mean, still seeing, we at this point, we had actually seen some wild giraffes and elephants as well, so that was kind of neat. But then seeing the wildebeest just in these sheer numbers was always impressive. And I think we said it multiple times just on the tour that, you know, it just doesn't get old. You know, you're standing up and just looking around and just seeing the same animal. I've seen, you know, probably at this point, 15,000 wildebeest or whatever. And it's like every time I saw him, I was like, that's cool. Like, we're really doing this. Now, do they follow the wildebeest migration in hopes that a lot of the predators are also following the migration? Yeah, I don't know if they... um specifically follow them it's just we happen to be there at the right time and um it's pretty easy to run into a herd of the wildebeest just kind of driving around you see like i said you see them all over the place so uh it certainly presented itself as an opportunity we stopped and talked to one different group at one point and they that morning had seen a, a live kill and that was pretty exciting i guess but you know usually the cats are only active in the, the morning or the evening when it's cooler out because they're actually pretty lazy animals it turns out but yeah so they're not actively following a, a specific herd or anything like that or following the migration it's just they happen to come up north around that time from uh from tanzania and that's just kind of the, the scheduled migration i guess what other animals were you able to see on this safari no oh, man we kept a list and it would take us all day just to read through the list but you know we saw we saw ostrich i saw a thing called a secretary bird which is basically just as like big white bird with like this big fanned out plumage and it was just really kind of neat to see and we saw some cheetahs hyenas zebras hippos we saw a, a, a rhino man i could sit here all day and just kind of go through all the list but we saw just just about everything you could hope to so i feel like rhinos are hard to find did this seem like an exciting moment for everyone or did they kind of prep you and they felt like you would be able to find one 
No, they, they set the expectations pretty early, you know, saying, oh, these are the, we're going to try to get you to see the big five, right? And Rhino's included in that. And, you know, there's no guarantee. You know, they told you that the numbers are way down. And we actually didn't end up seeing the Rhino until like the last day. And we just kind of caught him from a distance, you know, saw him. And then he kind of started trotting off and off the horizon he went. And we never saw him again. So it was a, a quick encounter kind of thing. But they certainly prep you and make sure that you, you realize that that was a, a unique experience that not everybody gets to have. How close to the animals are you allowed to get while you're on this safari? And how close do the safari guides try to get you to these animals? So a lot of their interactions that we try to have is, you know, very, very close, which was kind of surprising in a lot of cases, right? especially when you talk about a lion. So the way that this thing generally works, as they kind of told us, is they have a CB radio and all these groups kind of talk to each other because as long as everybody's doing business, it's good for everybody kind of thing. So you'll get a call over the radio and you'll just kind of hear him mumble some stuff and, you know, and it's in Swahili or whatever. So I have no idea what he's saying. And then all of a sudden the driver just steps on it and like drop, jumps over this curb and just drives across like the savannah and just like takes off. And then, you know, we get up to the spot where there's just like the swarm of vans and SUVs like circling this one area trying to get like a good view of whatever they're looking at. And in a lot of cases, you know, we, we did that with the, some lions. We did that with some cheetahs that were eating on a carcass of something. We did that with some hyenas. It was it was just really cool. And, you know, you're probably, if they're in an accessible spot, you're within 10 feet of them in a lot of cases. So that was pretty, uh, pretty alarming. Is that, yeah. Were you nervous at any point or were you just like, okay, I'm accepting this. This is the experience we paid for and this is what we want. I think we mostly just kind of gave into it and accepted it. I mean, everybody seemed like that was kind of just what the expectation was and everybody was kind of doing it. But I mean, of course, you have to be aware that it's a whole wild animal, right? So you never know what they're actually going to do. But I mean, they've obviously seen a lot of cars and stuff, so they're just kind of chilling and you know, it is what it is for them too, which is kind of sad. But I mean, it's what you sign up for too, right? So you, you know you're going out there to see these things and I'm sure millions of people have seen them at this point. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty cool and they certainly don't want you opening the door, that's for sure. <laughs> i can imagine that would create just a little bit of chaos yeah there was a i don't even know if i talked about it in here but um but at one point when we stopped for lunch it was kind of like a box lunch kind of deal so you get a sandwich you know an apple and a bag of chips or whatever and uh, we stopped by this little lakeside where there was an option to go on like you pay this armed guard guy basically and he takes you down to see the hippos um and those of course are quite dangerous and as we covered in the last one or whatever so they don't want anybody going uh, much closer than they brought these people but like i said this guy had a pretty intense uh rifle with him so he was he was well equipped but um anyways so we're out basically picnicking and they're you know telling us you know watch your food watch your food and we're like what are you talking about and then all of a sudden like these families of monkeys would just come by and they're like snag your apple and run off into the into the tree and like it was like what was that and in a lot of cases too, that you know, they left. They, you know, vans were still open, and then you'd see a monkey jump in through like the roof and go and grab like a whole box lunch and take off. It was so funny. Wow, that's that's really cool because I think in your mind you don't think that's going to happen, even though you're paying for this experience. And when it does, it really gets you excited and kind of blows your mind. Yeah, it's you just don't think that these things are going to get all that close to you. You know, I think they're going to be kind of shy, but you know, I think at this point they just associate, Oh, that that's the, the other animal that brings me food. Right. And people are stupid too. And we'll just kind of keep throwing them chips and feed them and stuff. And they're like, stop feeding these things. They have like diseases. And if it bites you, you're going to be in trouble. And they'd still just keep feeding them. It's like, Oh my God, people. I wonder how in the future 
this is going to affect tourists and how these monkeys, like you said, associate them with food, and it could potentially become a negative for people visiting. Yeah, it could certainly uh, impact that for sure. And you might not be able to stop in the same places or you might not be able to do kind of the, the lunch things or maybe it's just lunch in the car that you've been in all day that's covered in dust and stuff. So it's, it's you know, you just got to be kind of smart out there. And certainly they're wild animals, right? You don't want them depending on people for food either. That's not going to help anybody. Day nine begins. It says here you have a full day safari. I imagine you are up bright and early and getting into the van and getting ready to go. Yeah, it was pretty early. I think, I forget the exact timing, but basically from the campsite, it ended up being about a half an hour ride or so just to get to kind of the entrance to the park and when you really start to, you know, expect to see some stuff. Um, so, you know, everybody has to get up and eat breakfast and you kind of get on the road. So it was, it was probably like a get up at five kind of thing, eat your breakfast and be on the road by like six, six thirty, something like that. Sounds kind of about right. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty early morning and then we weren't slated to get back until it was like a seven or eight o'clock at night kind of thing. So it was like a full 12 hour day. When people think of a sunrise in Africa, they picture that stereotypical bright orange glowing sun, just peeking its head over up above the horizon. Nah, Sylvania. It's like a, a single tree in front of the sun, completely blacked out, only seeing its silhouette. Is it similar to what you experienced while you were there? Yeah. And we actually, um, uh, on the trip, being with a whole bunch of young people, and this comes down to the, the whole point right later in a minute, but um, everybody on this trip was like obsessed with themselves and Instagram, which was kind of interesting. So everybody was just posting pictures all the time and taking about 3 million pictures. So one guy actually spotted that tree that you're talking about and had the driver like turn around and stop. And we're like, bro, we're going to go see some like animals and stuff. He's like, oh, I got to get a picture, got to get a picture. But I mean, it was cool that we did, right? But we, you know, like I said, we have probably 30 pictures of that that exact thing is, you know, this blacked out tree and there's a mountain and then there's the sun coming up and it's just these gorgeously warm yellow and orange colors. And, you, you know, it's just, it really brings it back again where you're, you're pinching yourself and it's like, wow, this is Africa. This is not just, you know, I'm looking at a sunrise through my window at home, right? This is, no, this is a unique country and a unique experience where you're going to get something that you you might never ever get again, right? It's just, it's hard to put into words exactly how beautiful that really is. Instagram is king of the safari, apparently. But in all honesty, how do you balance taking those pictures? Because it does give you a great memory and it can last a lifetime. How do you balance that with being in the moment? That's a great question for this, right? So a lot of people... like. All the kids we were with were doing mostly like selfies and like, here's a lion in behind me, right? So let me lean over so I get the right angle and stuff. And clearly we're doing the same thing with, you know, this is really neat. And how many people will have a picture with a cheetah in the background or whatever animal? Um, so a lot of it was kind of just point shoot and then, you know, take a minute and really take it in. Um, we got, you know, many pictures of the same things over and over again to make sure you get a good one or whatever. But I know for me personally, and I think my wife did the same thing if I remember correct or correctly, but. We were standing up the entire time we were driving around. We never really sat down. So it was really just kind of being up and out of the car and kind of just, you know, periscoping around basically and looking to see what you could see and just, you know, really taking in uh, the sights versus, um, you know, snapping pictures on the phone or whatever while you're just kind of driving around. It's really just trying to exist in the moment like you're kind of talking about and make sure that, you know, we're getting uh, what we uh, expect to out of it. So I'm going to ask this because I know it's Aaron's favorite animal. Did you see a cheetah? 
So when we ended up catching up with the uh, the cheetahs, it was kind of midday or whatever. Um, we did see a pair of them, and they were kind of munching on some. Uh, I think it was a zebra leg, if I remember correctly, or whatever. But uh, and now uh, at that point, um, it was kind of too warm for them to really be running around too much. Like I said, the cat seemed to really, to really like it when it's cooler and kind of early mornings, and maybe catch an animal while it's a little bit sleepier than it would be in the middle of the day. Oh, nice! Are you jealous, Aaron? I bet you are. I am super jealous because cheetahs are my number one favorite animal. So absolutely jealous of that. So during this part of the safari, you can actually get to Tanzania. Did it seem safe? Were the countries pretty lax with each other or did you feel like there was tension? Yeah, it seems like there's at least some mutual agreement where the border is a little bit flexed, at least out in the, the natural park or national park, excuse me. And you really wouldn't be able to tell except for the fact, uh, you know, the tour guides tell you. And then there's like this big stone pillar basically in the middle of a, a field area that says, you know, T and K on one side, you know, Tanzania, Kenya. And you kind of stand on this thing, take some pictures. And it was just kind of a moment to be like, oh, I guess we're in Tanzania now. This is kind of neat. But, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the four corners or whatever in the U.S., right, where you can stand in four states at the same time. It's just kind of like, here's a thing. This is kind of cool. But, you know, it wasn't anything... Uh, too overwhelmingly special, but, you know, I guess technically we went to Tanzania, too. So Maasai Mara National Park in Kenya butts right up against the Serengeti. Did you get a chance to go to the Serengeti? I'd probably say it's more or less that we were just kind of told about it, and you can kind of see it on the map or whatever. We did take, like, a road that probably at some point technically snuck across the border, right, and then kind of came back in. Um, but I wouldn't go as far as to say that, you know, we were in the Serengeti National Park or whatever, but... Uh, Certainly, that would be on a a list to do in the future. So it sounds like even though Tanzania was right there, you were only able to tiptoe in it. It also sounds like you might have to take a trip back. Yeah, I wouldn't mind doing it again um, and then seeing it a little bit from a different perspective. And then, uh, you know, with Kilimanjaro being right there, it would be kind of neat to be able to say that I've at least stepped foot on it. If not, you know, totally climbed it. But obviously, we'll have to see where family takes me in the future. But uh, I'm sure we'll be doing some trips a little long soon. Now, you're sleeping in a tent. Something starts making noise outside at night. I'm sure most people who camp normally get a little nervous even though they know it's most likely nothing that serious, I can only imagine what it's like camping in Africa and hearing something outside of your tent when it's pitch black out. Yeah, so at first we just kind of heard, you know, kind of something, that, you know, rustling around outside the tent. We're kind of like, wait a minute, what is that? And, you know, I think we both kind of got, you know, shocked out of sleep a little bit and, you know, heart rate starts going up, so you start freaking out a little bit. And then you could tell that it was actually eating the grass. So it was a little bit less concerning at that point, but I mean, it's still an animal of unknown size and intentions, right? So we had no idea what the thing's doing. So I'm, I tried to crawl out of bed, you know, real, real quiet, like, and go take a look and see if I could see what it was. And I could kind of see a silhouette, but it was such a dark night that you really couldn't tell what it was. It looked like it might have some, some fluff to it or something. So by all chances, it was just like a sheep or something. But you know, you're stressed out and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And you know, you're 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 in this wilderness and have no idea what to expect. And you know, all of a sudden, you wake up and there's something chewing grass outside, and you're like, oh, what is happening? But then uh, when I got to the window, I ended up knocking over a water bottle and making a ton of noise. So the things took off. So I never got to like try to snap a picture or anything. So we have no idea what it was. But it, it, by all uh, accounts, it seems like it would have been a, a totally fine animal to interact with. But we weren't about to take that chance. <laughs> I can only imagine what is going through your mind thinking 
all disoriented in the middle of the night, waking up, probably sweating it out a little bit. And then you peek outside and it's just possibly a sheep. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah, definitely after the fact, quite funny. But in, in the heat of the moment, it was a little bit, a uh, little, little stressful until we kind of figured out, you know, tea and grass were probably okay. But oh my God, that was, uh, that's one of those things that you, you don't forget. And, uh, you're right up in, you know, a, a comedy or something, right? But it was, it was funny. In our final segment, we talk about the final day of the safari and trying to see some lion activity. Roger heads back to Nairobi and talks about the city and what to expect. We also ask some personal questions about Roger's time in Kenya. Day 10 begins. The big thing here is trying to see some lion activity. Were you actually able to see some lions and possibly see them actually moving around rather than just laying around? Yeah, we saw definitely some more lions. We had seen some kind of as we were going through the, uh, the safari days, but we did see a few more uh, on the early morning trip. We saw one lioness just kind of cruising around, just kind of walking, not really sure if she was hunting, but possibly. Um, but no, we didn't really see anything that was uh, incredibly exciting, I guess, aside from seeing a lion in nature. But, you know, um, there was you know no obvious hunting that we, we saw. So that was a little disappointing. But I mean, if that's what you're not going to see, then I mean, we still had quite the experience. So we didn't really feel like we got cheaped out or anything. Most people may not know that big cats are very lazy and most of the time they're just laying around. Would you still say that even if they're just laying around, it's well worth being able to see them out on the safari and actually getting out there and seeing them in the wild? Absolutely. And I mean, I didn't know that they were as lazy as they are until we got there. You know, the the tour guides do a pretty good job of kind of managing your expectations. So that's pretty good. But yeah, all the groups that we ended up seeing were either sleeping kind of under some brush or like saw a couple of cats like up in the trees and stuff. So, I mean, it was pretty neat to see that, you know, they can climb and sleep up there. It was kind of cool. And then just to kind of still see them, like you're saying, it's just, it's really just this, you know, feeling of this, this raw natural animal that could, you know, flip a switch at any moment and be this relentless killing machine. But it was, it was just pretty cool to see him and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So the safari comes to an end. You make your way back to Nairobi. We kind of touched on that at the beginning of this show. Can you explain to us what the city of Nairobi is like? Yeah, I think when you actually start getting into some of the the more common areas, I guess, of Nairobi and common being more for like the local folks, right? It gets pretty run down and I don't quite call it depressing, but you know, you just kind of have this feeling of you know, not having a whole lot of, of of things, which isn't necessarily, you know, a sign of wealth or anything like that, right? But it's just, everything is kind of, you know, minimalistic, dirty floors, there's kind of trash everywhere, which is kind of sad. And just people are everywhere. There's a lot of people. One thing I did see that was kind of encouraging is they see as much as they throw things, you know, just on the, the ground or whatever, it does seem like they recycle quite a bit. Um, so you see lots of art with like recycled bottles or like glass portraits, I guess. We even had one in the treehouse when we were staying in Karen. But, um, so that was kind of encouraging to see and kind of a, a creative way to kind of reuse some of that stuff that they had. But I mean, just, just expect to run into a lot of that kind of rundown areas. And it's not that that's unexpected for, you know, where you are, but it was a level that I guess I never really had expected. And compared to Karen, it was a, I don't want to say it was a total 180. Karen had its kind of rundown areas as well, but this was, you know, just kind of a more of a, a mass uh, group of people that are, you know, just kind of living and getting by with what they have. 
Some notes that the other big cities around the world can take is the fact that using recycled plastic and glass can be very successful and you can use it for a lot of various things. Yeah, and there's there's so many stats out there for different things like that, right? Where we're just making, you know, way too much plastic. We're not reusing it. Same thing with like even glass, right? You know, we're I even thought I saw some stories where, you know, we're taking sand from certain beaches and stuff, right? Because glass primarily comes from sand and it's a whole process. So we're it's a whole nother tangent to get onto, I guess. But, you know, try to reuse as much as you can and you know, try to use recyclable things and just try not to be a, a scumbag and throw everything out the window, right? So do, do what you can to uh, help out the planet. And, you know, I sound like a tree hugger now or whatever, but it's what I believe in and it's all we got. So let's uh, take care of it. Is Nairobi itself worth visiting or would you say you'd rather spend your day at one of the wildlife preserves or on a safari? Based on what we got to see, I mean, we were only there for, I guess, collectively probably 24 hours right between when we landed and then when we actually got back and kind of stayed there before our flight home. We didn't really look for a lot of things to do. We ended up staying in in an Airbnb that was in modestly protected community again, which was very comforting. But outside of that, there really wasn't anything that we were interested in trying to do. And at this point in the trip, it's kind of at the point where you're almost ready to be home, but not quite. But I mean, based on what I've seen on TripAdvisor and just kind of looking around at different things to do, I would definitely advocate you spend the vast majority of your time on some safari or somewhere else. That's great that you bring that up, especially with the Airbnb, because a lot of people when they're traveling to lesser wealthy countries, they get nervous about possibly staying in Airbnbs because of the security issue. Did you feel secure throughout your whole stay in Nairobi? And what made you choose the Airbnb over a hotel? No, um, I mean, just outside of the area is still kind of the same rundown kind of random city stuff that you expect to see. But then once you get kind of in the walls and within the security checkpoint that they have to get into the area, it's pretty well kept up. Everybody seems friendly enough with visitors uh, around or whatever. So I never really felt like we were in any harm's way. Uh, We ended up staying there, I guess, primarily just based on you know, previous trip experience where you're getting probably a little bit more out of an Airbnb than you are out of a hotel, right? It's not just kind of your one room with a bed and, you know, here's a toilet and a corner. This actually ended up being kind of uh, more like an apartment, which was kind of nice. So it was, I don't have a good estimate in terms of square footage or anything, but there was, you know, two bathrooms or two, yeah, there's two bathrooms, two bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen. So I mean, we kind of had the, the full setup. So if we wanted to go and get some groceries or something, cook a decent meal or whatever. But yeah, we generally try to stick with Airbnb based on just, you know, the amenities that you will get out of it. And then usually it's a little bit more budget friendly than a a nicer hotel as well. We're going to start getting into some of the more personal questions about your trip. I'm going to let Jim take it away on the first question. If there was one thing you'd change about your trip, what would it be? Yeah, I think just being kind of the uh, outdoors type that I I tend to think that I am, at least having gone to Kilimanjaro would have been really cool just to kind of kind of see it be able to hike a little bit of it or whatever, but uh, mostly it was kind of a a time limitation and then kind of a budget thing. So based on kind of the the trip that we had planned and I had already taken some time off uh, before this trip, so I I took some time off a week back at work and then took some more time off. So it was kind of like, I probably shouldn't push my luck too much. But uh, yeah, it really would have been cool to kind of check that off the list. But like I said, there's always next trip. If you got the chance to go back to Kenya, how would you squeeze Mount Kilimanjaro into your itinerary for your next trip? 
So I think with our basic itinerary that we had, the only way that that would have worked out, I think, would have been to kill the three-day safari and then, you know, take a a car trip or a a small plane or something and get into Tanzania because it it was a substantial uh, drive away. So it wouldn't have been a a quick thing by any means. So it was definitely a, a days, not hours type of trip. Someone who wants to go to Kenya, what's the biggest concern they should have in preparing to go? So I think uh, based on what we had for an experience, right, it was really just kind of knowing what you're getting into in terms of uh, each uh, attraction and kind of their operating hour. So for the specific example of the elephant uh, orphanage, if folks remember from the first uh, episode or whatever, we had to detour our our trip because of the Uber situation and had to shift our schedule around to go to the elephants another day because we couldn't get the ride, and then the only accessible hours they had, I forget if it was 10 to 11 or 10 to 12, something like that, but just kind of knowing what limitations you might have on, on certain plans so that you can kind of budget your time accordingly and make sure that you get to the spots uh, you want to go to, but really just kind of go in with a, a general game plan of what you're hoping to see and then kind of be a little bit flexible in terms of days, but you know, you know pick your, pick your uh, options accordingly. How would you convince someone to go to Kenya who says they would never consider going to an African nation. Maybe they just want to stick to that European culture, which isn't vastly different from ours. So I think for me, it's really just, you know, being able to see kind of all these like natural wonders, right? So you think about, you know, in our case, we were fortunate enough to see a rhino and then you see all these different animals and things, right? So that really sung out to me in terms of this is a unique opportunity to go and see these things in a natural habitat and you just kind of sneak up on them and just kind of be a fly on the wall for a few minutes and really get to kind of look into that experience and kind of involve yourself in a new culture. And I think another thing that's really uh, important for folks uh, and that I really try to take back with me when I travel too is, you know, just a new appreciation for, you know, what we have at our fingertips in the States or wherever you're from, I guess, for that matter. In most cases, you're not going to be as as bad off as some of these countries are. And it's really a humbling experience and kind of makes you realize, you know, that there's more to the world than just being upset on a rant on Facebook, right? So you can really kind of do some good in, in the world and uh, not just be a, a, a social media a bully, right? And just kind of, you know, oh, I'm doing making changes because I'm saying these things, right? Really just kind of getting out there and experiencing the world and taking that back uh, so that you can kind of really apply that to your life as well. Would you yourself consider returning to Kenya? And if you did, what would be the first thing you'd do there? Yeah, I think uh, hands down, no chance. I I would not go if I got the opportunity to go again. Um, But I think the first thing is really just spend as much time as I could in some of these national parks and then really just kind of get into as much opportunity to see different things and see different animals. And I mean, we got to see all the big five and kind of check off a whole bunch of lists, but there's always something else to see, right? Or, you know, see that fresh kill or whatever, which sounds kind of barbaric of me or whatever, but it's, it's kind of nature. So it's, it's kind of that unique opportunity that you don't really get many people that get to say they saw that kind of stuff. So that was, that'd be really kind of interesting to me to try to get a little bit more time in the park. Was there anything during your trip that you could do without seeing potentially something that was a little maybe disappointing, something you wouldn't recommend somebody going to Kenya tried to put on their list? Yes. The major elements that we did, right? So all the different attractions that we got to see were all great. I mean, there was, you know, some level of expectation that you should go in it with, right? You're not going to be pampered and wine and dine when you go to some of these things. It's not just, here's this place. They're going to talk to you about the animals or whatever. And, you know, that's kind of it. Um, but 
going in with you know TripAdvisor in your pocket and being able to understand what other people are writing about it and kind of managing our expectations that way is a good thing. So I think uh, my major advice would be just you know take those with a grain of salt. You're always going to have somebody on there that's upset about something that's absolutely asinine and ridiculous. If there's something you want to do, go and do it. I guess <laughs> the one thing that I would say was probably a no-go for me was probably the Pizza Hut, to be honest, just because it didn't really sit all that well. So that was kind of the uh, the one black eye on the trip, you know, besides getting electrocuted and all that stuff. But I mean, that was all kind of the, the fun story. But uh, And then the mall was just a mall, right? I mean, it was kind of neat to see what stores were there. And then we did end up finding like a food shop to pick up some snacks before we went on our, uh, on our merry way. But um, yeah, I think really just be open to the experience and just kind of really allow yourself to go to some of the things that you might not normally do or think are really interesting because you might learn something. Yeah, so I, I listened to the, the last bunch of episodes trying to make sure that I didn't say something that somebody already else did, right? But um, basically what we came up with is, you know, don't let the fear of the, of the unknown stop you from exploring, right? So we already kind of talked about that a little bit, but it's really just... All right, and this is a pretty standard question on the show. For someone who's new to traveling or maybe nervous about starting to travel... What is one piece of advice you could give them besides just get out there and do it? Go and look at some of the things that you could do while you're there and just say, would I normally get to do these things? And if the answer is no, go try it. Like you don't know what it's going to be like until you really give it a shot. And some of these places offer some really uh, unique opportunities. And, and Kenya was not a disappointment in that either, right? So we went to you know a bunch of different restaurants that maybe we wouldn't have tried if it were in the States because it looked a little sketchy, but you know we gave it a shot and it ended up being really good. And we were pretty much pleased with everything that we did. So just be open to the experience and you know, let yourself enjoy uh, what you're able to do while you're there. Roger, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about Kenya. I still think it's slightly funny that out of all the trips that you told me you've taken and you could talk about, it somehow somehow slipped your mind, even though the experiences that you've just told us all about are absolutely amazing. And anyone who wants to get out there and see these amazing animals, this is your chance to do it. And Kenya is a great place to do that. So again, Thank you so much for coming on here. James and I and our listeners truly appreciate it. Yeah, I hope uh, this inspires some people to go and take another trip or go somewhere that they haven't thought of before. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to uh, happy to have come on. Thanks for having me. And, you know, maybe I'll get an opportunity to come on again sometime. And I would love to do that. We want to thank Roger for coming on. And we also want to wish him congratulations on the birth of his daughter. If you're interested in seeing some pictures from the Kenya trip, head over to our page on Facebook or follow us on any social media platform at IBBpod. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspire Beyond Borders. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IBBpod for updates and pictures from our guests. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast.